Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of NSH's podcast series, Awards Cast. In this series, we've been interviewing recipients of NSH's awards and scholarships, and this episode is no exception. Here we interview Louis Cherbolga, the recipient of the Jules Elias Excellence in IHC Award. But in this episode, don't expect awards to be the focus. Lewis gets straight to the point, explaining how antibodies are used in research, the emergence of synthetic antibodies, and his most surprising results from his extensive IHC career. Get ready for a deep dive into the world of research IHC. I'll now turn it over to Claire and Lewis. Hi everyone, I'm Claire Thornton. I have the pleasure today of interviewing my colleague, mentor, and good friend, Lewis Chiraboga, winner of the 2018 Jules Elias Excellence in IHC Award. Dr. Chiraboga obtained his AAS in histology from SUNY Cobleskill, his BS in biochemistry from CUNY John Jay, and his PhD in biochemistry from the CUNY Graduate School. So say hi, Lewis. Hi, everyone. <laughs> okay, for those of us who live in the clinical world, myself included, explain the difference between RUO and IVD antibodies, and what extra steps are required when working with an RUO antibody. I guess the simplest way I could put it is that you guys have it easy when you're working with an IVD antibody. <laughs> yes, we do. Um, you know already kind of what you need to do in terms of validating it. I mean, I don't know how frequently people in clinical labs really optimize antibodies. I'm assuming at academic centers, maybe a little bit more frequently than just kind of, uh, you know, smaller institutions. But for an RUO antibody, which is research use only antibody, um, it just means it's basically it hasn't been approved for diagnostic or prognostic purposes. I mean, you can use it any way you want to at that point. The process is, you know, first you have to optimize the antibody and make sure that it's working correctly. That sometimes can be one of the biggest and most significant challenges in terms of IHC. You know, it's not cut or dry necessarily whether an antibody is actually binding to what it says it's supposed to be binding to. And there's no way for us to know really exactly whether or not it's binding to the correct tissue component, whether it be the protein of interest that we're, we're trying to uh, find in the, in the samples. Beyond that, once you can get an antibody optimized, then validating the antibody, which is something I know that's very common in clinical practice in terms of getting 20 samples, you know, 10 known positives, five, you know, maybe positives and bunch that are going to be negative and making sure that your statistics play out that way is essentially what you're doing, just confirming that everything is operating correctly. Again, from, from the RUO perspective, we often don't even know that, and at times we are trying to establish what that statistical significance may be. So it becomes really challenging to, to kind of, and again, here goes this idea of you, we start collaborating with other people. We may be you know, collaborating with the investigator who's doing Western blots and is screening a bunch of samples through Western blots just to see whether or not the protein is expressed or not. The biggest thing now, I think, is probably that a lot of people are looking for expression level differences in terms of their targets and antibodies and immunochemistry is really challenging to do in that environment. It's not a simple binary kind of, hey, you know, it's positive or it's negative. It's, right. It needs to be more positive than this particular sample. And that's just really challenging to do in immunochemistry. Now, you recently told me something that I was not aware of. And that is that some antibodies are now being made synthetically. And I was quite surprised when you mentioned this to me because I was under the 
assumption, I guess, that a majority of or all antibodies are still being made pulling from mice and rabbits and, you know, other species. Can you tell us anything about how these antibodies are made or in what might be any differences in working with them as opposed to um, more quote unquote traditional antibodies? Well, the, the driver for that has been that, and, and I've actually, as you know, I've given a couple of presentations about this, is about the, the lack of reproducibility in terms of antibodies in general. There's a lot of issues with, uh, revolving around that, as well as, you know, there were some issues with specific antibody manufacturers who shall remain nameless at this point, but <laughs> they, got, they got into a lot of trouble with the government, and not only in terms of their business practices, but also the fact that there was some real question about the way they were treating the animals that they were using to generate these antibodies. In all actuality, the recombinant antibody technology has been around for a long time, and it's actually now has really gained a lot of traction, not only because of immunochemistry and antibodies in that respect, but also because they're very effective ways of creating therapeutic antibodies that can be used to treat diseases. And so that's where the real power of the recombinant technology really c comes in. But the, the, the concept is actually quite easy, although in practice, I imagine it's not so straightforward. Essentially, you're basically going to be identifying a particular gene from a source cell and then amplifying and cloning that gene into a a vector. And then you insert that vector into a host, and that host can be bacterial, it can be mammalian, it could be yeast, it could be any, any number of different cell lines, and then expressing that essentially functional antibody in that system. And it's just a very efficient way of producing antibodies as opposed to using the monoclonal antibody technology, which is, you know, you have to have the animals, you have to then challenge the animals, you have to then potentially sacrifice the animals. And then, you know, if you're making monoclonals and you have to fuse them with a hybridoma cell line and then run the cell line, that takes a few months or several months to actually do. And all the while, you don't have a very good idea of whether or not you're going to get something that's going to be useful. The recombinant technology can work in as little as two months, and it's a much easier to screen for your target antibody than it is, you know, using the monoclonal technology. There's, you know, other advantages as well that may not be obvious. Since it's genetically engineered, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You can change the species, the isotype or the subtype by just changing the constant domain within the antibody. So it allows you a lot of flexibility and advantages over traditional technologies, much cheaper to the manufacturer as well to, to operate because you don't have to keep animals around, which are very expensive. And rightfully so, everybody's moving away from using animals. Even, even in basic research, we're trying to move away from using animals as, as models because they're difficult and time-consuming and expensive to operate. As a matter of fact, one of the talks that we were trying to bring in this year, and I think we'll have this year at the NSH meeting, is to have one of the antibody manufacturers come in and give a talk about the differences in traditional antibody manufacturing practices and now the resurgence of recombinant technology in, into the antibody manufacturing field. I think it's interesting that a lot of people work with these antibodies every day, but don't necessarily know how they're made or where they come from. And, and I have certainly explained to a few of my pathologists, you know, the reason why we need to keep such a close eye on our staining and because, you know, concentrations can vary. You can see shifts and changes in patterns. The science behind it, it's not as standardized as what you would think. So hopefully this prominent technology might change some of that. 
I expect that you're going to see a big change already. That's it's already starting to hit everybody in terms of these antibodies are much more frequently available now and being produced that way now. One last question, and I don't know if you thought about this ahead of time or not, but what is one of the most interesting or unexpected results that you have ever seen? <laughs> uh, nothing really surprises me anymore. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, everything is interesting to me. I, you know, so every result is an interesting result. Unexpected, I guess when things actually work correctly the first time, that is perhaps the most unexpected thing because I've grown so accustomed to, I don't want to say things not working, but just things not working seamlessly. So when you know, we get an antibody that we've never seen before and it comes in a tube, we don't even know what it's suspended in, and we run a few tests and it works really, really well, I think that's probably the most unexpected thing <laughs> that I come across. And it is usually surprising that it does work that way because we have no idea what they gave us sometimes. All right. Thank you very much, Lewis, for sharing some of your knowledge with us. Anything else that you'd like to say? Nope. I hope everybody can make it out to the meeting in New Orleans. And anybody can always, if they have questions, can always reach out and grab a hold of me. I'm listed all over the place. So I'd be more than happy to answer any questions that anybody else may have. All right. Good. Thank you very much. And congratulations on your award. Thanks, Claire.